Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Holwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this time, once again, we're returning to The Shadow of Rinsmouth by H.P. Lovecraft and looking at some of the sequels and adaptations. But before we get into all that extended stuff, what is going on? Woohoo! Happy New Year! Otherwise known as 364 days till Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Happy 2024, everyone. It feels weird saying that because we're recording this in November, but yes, Happy New Year. <laughs> we don't really need to say that we're doing it in advance, do we? That just spoils it. We don't need to, but I, I like spoiling the magic. I like whipping away the curtain and showing them what. You on. do. I don't know why you do. Why you like doing that. Because I like spreading misery and unhappiness wherever I go. I thought that was my job being the Grinch, but fair enough. But yes, Happy New Year. And by the time this episode goes out, there'll be another episode featuring yours truly going and hitting the airwaves, featuring me on being an interviewee on RPG Reanimators, hosted by Alex, Dr. Lex and Nathan, talking about my scenario with Saturnine Chalice. So what is RPG Reanimators? The three lads talk about previous scenarios, say, combination of uh, across various different games, but all with a, with a horror bent, mostly with a Cthuloid entity involved. They take old scenarios, they dissect them, and then talk about them, kind of do an examination of the, their anatomy, and then do a good old Herbert West on them and reanimate them to be used at the table again oh. in interesting and different ways for keepers that may either have run them before and want to try something different with them, or for keepers that haven't tried them yet and want some guidance and inspiration of how to use them at the table for the first time and maybe feeling a bit daunted by the raw text. Yeah, they're, they're a good bunch, and they've done some very, very interesting scenarios so far. Is it a usual thing for them to have the scenario author on to talk about their work, or is this a new thing for them? I think I'm the first author that's been on there. I know them all already. We've all played with Into the Darkness. They have had guests on before that have either run the scenario many, many times, like they had um, Holly Buto on to talk about Uncle Timothy's will, so they, they have had an extra voice rather than just the three of them that have then been brought in to add another dynamic to each particular episode as kind of their subject matter expert. And if you're wondering where that is, we'll have links in the show notes at blasphemoustomes.com. And now on to our main topic, The Shadow Over Innsmouth, brackets, sequels and adaptations. We mentioned in the first episode that The Shadow of Rinsmouth is probably Lovecraft's most influential tale. And boy, has it spawned a lot of other work. A lot of other work. This will not be close to an exhaustive overview, simply because there are so many spin-offs that you'd need a whole lifespan of a deep one just to keep up with them all. So Shadow of Rinsmouth in fiction, there are numerous books of... Um things with Innsmouth in the title. So there's Stephen Jones's Shadows Over Innsmouth. And I, I hadn't realised until we went to the, um, the Innsmouth Literary Festival that there's like two more sequels, which I think you picked up there, didn't you? I had one of them already, which which is Weird Shadows Over Innsmouth is the second one. And then Weirder 
Shadow is over in Smith. There's an imaginative title for you. Yes. <laughs> yeah, of which I've got now all the first edition hardbacks of, say, all three. They just need a weirdest shadows out of Innsmouth just to wrap them all up. <laughs> and that's just to name those ones. I mean, there's, um, can't, I can't remember what the first Chaosium collection was called, but. The first one was the Innsmouth Cycle. Yep. Right, of course, the Innsmouth Cycle. And then there's Tales out of Innsmouth. Both edited by Rob Price. That's just the top of the pile, really. I don't know about you guys, but as you dig through some of these stories, a lot of them are kind of similar-ish it's kind of like we we've read this great hp lovecraft story and now we're going to do something excitingly different which is quite similar <laughs> what i found was that the earlier ones tend to rehash lovecraft but i think a lot of the more recent stories that have been inspired by the shadow of rinsmith in some form tend to try to do something different with it and that kind of makes sense i think we see that as a pattern with lovecraftian fiction in general that there are very definitely different ages of Lovecraftian fiction. And I think the mm. original Lovecraft Circle stuff, there was a lot of variation there. I mean, I think partly thanks to Clark Ashton Smith. But then the ones who followed immediately after the big three, I think did very much ape a Lovecraft. And you do see a lot of that where it is basically just Lovecraft stories retold with very slight differences. But then from like the 60s, 70s onwards, things started expanding and changing. And then in the modern day, it's almost like aggressively deconstructing Lovecraft and trying to do very different things that he intended and it's become very much its own thing so which stories have uh, stood out to us i think is a is a question we should ask which stories would we recommend to people a lot of it depends on what you're looking to get out of the story whether you're looking to read them for entertainment whether you're looking for gaming inspiration whether you're looking for stuff that's going to flesh out the kinds of elements that you want to bring into your games and perhaps give you some more depth you can add because i'd say those are very different goals that there are stories you could read that perhaps give you ideas for games that i wouldn't necessarily recommend as stories because they aren't necessarily a lot of fun to read, but that doesn't mean you can't mine them for ideas. Hmm. Hmm. Fair enough. Yeah. I've only had a chance to have a look at a couple of the short stories, particularly from the uh, Shadows Over and Smith, the original Stephen Jones compendium. I had a read of Down to the Boots by D.F. Lewis, because it's a nice, nice and short one. Oh, yeah. Very short. It's just under three pages long, which I must admit, as a story, was okay, but it very much just felt like. I'm just going to slap the name Innsmouth on there and it, this could have really happened anywhere. That it, it was a generic enough framework for a story that it didn't really feel like it added anything to or any... It didn't feel like it was enriched by anything more by just saying that it was set in Innsmouth. Hmm. Dessa's work is something very much of itself. And I think it helps if you look at his stories as prose poems more than stories often. 
they're more exercises in in style and weird ideas than they are in and certainly the the few Lovecraftian ones that he's done in trying to enhance or build upon the mythos. I think he's much more interested in creating a a weird dreamlike mood. And I think Down to the Boots did a great job of that. It is a very D.F. Lewis story. Just to put this in perspective, Des Lewis, you know, D.F. Lewis is an old friend of mine. When I first moved to the UK, I started a writer's workshop and Des was one of the members of it. And he is a remarkable character. He'd written a book of weird fiction when he was in his teens, very much in the kind of Ramsey Campbell mode, and sent it off to Arkham House, to August Erlith, who had rejected it as, as apparently the quote was pretty much grew, and he'd given up writing as a result. And then he got to his 40s and just decided to start writing this weird fiction again. And he started writing like five of these really short stories every week, and just sent them out to every publication going whether or not they published fiction. And a few years after that, he'd largely stopped doing that. But you've got this time period from the late 80s through to around the late 90s, where particularly if you look at British anthologies, almost every single one of them will have a D.F. Lewis story in there. There was also an issue of Dagon that was devoted to his work, which is absolutely terrific. There are a few collections out there. I highly recommend them if, if you can get hold of them. The other one that I read that wasn't one of D.F. Lewis's ones mm -hmm. was by Kim Newman called A Quarter to Three and ended on a delightfully terrible pun, which made me like it even more. <laughs> There's something about like roadside diners that have always been of interest to me as being yeah. a great setting for a scenario or even stories in general. And to have the idea of this roadside diner just outside Innsmouth or Muth as it's referred to in the scenario, without the inns at the beginning. Mm. It had more about the setting, it had more about deep ones in than Down to the Boots did for me. And so the fact it was told in quite a almost, um, I don't know what the what the best way to describe his style is, very, um, a very stylized prose that just felt like, not quite like a Raymond Chandler-esque kind of vibe to it, but definitely had that kind of other vibe of something I'd come across before. It just really appealed to me and I loved it, even though it was only about four or five pages long. I could easily sit back and read that again. Yeah, I really enjoyed that one. It, it kind of jumps off the page. It's just sort of well-written. I think those ones sort of stand out. Yeah, Kim Newman is a terrific writer in general. Mm. I've read a lot of his books and he tends to specialise in pastiche and certainly his other story in this collection, which he published under his regular pseudonym of Jack Yeovil, is very much a Raymond Chandler pastiche. Uh, that's the big fish. The big fish, yeah. It is good. I mean, you get the, the style of it immediately as soon as you start reading it, you realise it's Raymond Chandler. Yeah, the other one that caught my eye was uh, Deep Net by David Langford. Oh, yeah. Yes. It caught my eye, but then I didn't really feel it did that much. It didn't do. I guess it didn't do that much for me. But. It's an interesting story, just in that it's a a real nineties time capsule. Yeah, it is because it deals with the technology of the time. So the basic shtick mm. is that. Innsmouth has become this sort of tech hub, or at least this this hotbed of software development in the 1990s, and they're writing this sort of Microsoft Office-type software. 
What really dates it more than anything else is the repeated use of the term VDUs in there, which is a term you just don't mm. hear very much anymore. You know, visual display units or these cathode ray monitors that the software is manipulating into producing radiation that is mutating people and causing them to birth deep ones. And I, I think it's kind of a fun idea, but... Yeah, as we said before, uh, with the Cthulhu Now stuff that was published in the 1990s, having become a period setting, having become Cthulhu then, DeepNet is the same kind of thing. It was cutting edge at the time that it was written, but now, yeah, it is a historical artifact. You see, you say about, about that they've got it set around this MS Office type of software. I don't think you need anything more horrifying than Microsoft Office in the 90s when you have the horror of clippy that that horrible bloody assistant oh, yes. could just pop up and get in the way of your life that's horrific enough without adding tentacles or the mythos into it it was helping you matt it was helping yeah <laughs> are you trying to write a letter <laughs> are you trying to summon dagon there were a couple of odd but not good stories in that collection as well which are probably worth mentioning there's a story that i pretty much hated in there, which was Beyond the Reef by Basil Copper, which is a novella, I'd say. I mean, it's it's a lengthy story. It isn't a good story. The prose is workmanlike, but it's dull. And it just goes on and on and on. Yeah, I just kind of gave up. I was in the same position. I read the first half of it, and then I realised how much there was left, and I just skim-read the rest because I'd lost the will to carry on at that stage. Yeah. But at the same time, I think there's quite a lot you could take as inspiration for a game there because it's set not too long after the fall of Innsmouth and it basically deals with Deep Ones and Ashogoth perhaps taking revenge or at least infiltrating Miskatonic University via this set of tunnels which have been dug from the coast all the way to Arkham. And there's this this kind of weird underground labyrinth that's developed under the university. And there's a, a nice throwaway bit as well, which is that the Deep Ones have got magic that allows them to control the weather. And at some point, they've summoned this tornado and just sent it into Arkham just to fuck shit up. And, yeah, they, there's fun stuff like that in there. But, oh, God, as a story, I do not recommend it if you're looking for fun. No. There's certain bits there where I'm either raising my eyebrows or rolling my eyes. So, uh, yeah, I don't think I'll have a look at that one. On the other hand, another bad story, which I was just surprised to see in there, was Return to Innsmouth by Guy N. Smith. Because I, I never realised Guy N. Smith had written any mythos fiction, and seeing his name in there just was a surprise. The story itself is not what I expected, because... If you recognise the name Guy and Smith, you know that he wrote these really lurid pulp novels, pulp horror novels in the, the 70s primarily, in the 80s, the Crabs series primarily. There was this whole thing in the wake of the success of, of James Herbert's Rats books where suddenly every author around wanted to write potboiler horror novels about animals on the rampage. And... 
the Crab series was probably the most successful rip-off in that vein, and they were everywhere throughout the 70s and 80s. They were terribly written, but they were incredibly popular. And just seeing his name pop up in this, I thought, oh, yeah, this is going to be something lurid and nasty and silly, and and it's not really. It's largely just a retelling of The Shadow of Rinsmith with a slightly different twist at the end, and it's... I just got to the end and thought, why? They should have had a double bill with him and Sean Hudson doing a Slugs one. I don't know whether there's any truth to it, but I did hear from a friend who apparently knew Sean Hudson that Sean Hudson's origin story as a horror writer was that he'd been working as a roadie for Iron Maiden and had been killing time backstage reading lots of horror novels and apparently had got to reading a book one day that apparently he just thought, I could do better than that. And that book was one of Guy and Smith's crab novels, so it all ties together. Mm. I guess the other kind of influential short story, well, I say influential, it's going to be one that a lot of people read, at least in the early days of the mythos, would have been Innsmouth Clay by August Ehrlich. That is in one of them, I remember seeing that. Right. It is one of the posthumous collaborations, and the prose in it is a bit better than some of the Durlith I've read, because it was one of his later stories. It wasn't like one of the ones that he wrote when he was a teenager. But it doesn't do anything particularly interesting, but it does introduce one nice idea, which is the Innsmouth clay, which is this idea that after the raid on Innsmouth and they depth-charged or torpedoed Devil Reef and stirred up the area around there, at least in this story, there's all this sediment that, that gets stirred up. And there is this artist, this... Uh, the, um, very much in your vein, Paul. He makes ceramic sculptures. Marvellous. He gathers up all this clay that's been drawn up from the ruins of, of Devil Reef and starts making this sculpture of this deep one woman out of it, who then seems to start inhabiting his dreams. Mm. I think that's an idea you could possibly rip off for a game. It is actually in one of the Jones books. It's the third one, Weird Shadows Over Innsmouth. It's in there. Oh, okay. Right. Uh. There are also a few novels that draw upon... The Shadow of Rinse, but there's one that I read some years back and I only have vague memories of, which is Deeper by James A. Moore, which I must admit I was kind of disappointed by. The premise of it is that there's a group of scientists who are researching this bit of coastline off Massachusetts, and there is a new settlement that's been built there I think they're largely unaware that this settlement is built on the ruins of what used to be Innsmouth, and they don't really know the history. And as they start digging into it, some elements of what was an Innsmouth and you know, some deep ones start coming to the surface, both figuratively and literally. I thought that had potential. I thought it was quite an evocative idea, but ultimately it just kind of plays out as a pulp monster story. There isn't really any emotional depth or poignancy or anything to it. It's, I mean, it's, it's a fun horror romp, but ironically for the name, there isn't anything particularly deep about it. But the other ones which 
we touched upon in the last episode, and I believe you've read some of these as well, Paul, are the Ruthander Emerys Innsmouth Legacy stories. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, the first one is available online, Tor.com. That's the Litany of Earth. Yeah, the Litany of Earth. And then she's got the second two novels, which are out. Wintertide and Deep Roots. And yeah, I mean, they're, they're kind of set around, well, not the first one's not set in Innsmouth, but um, it's set on the, on the West Coast, uh, if I remember correctly. Yeah, in San Francisco. Yeah, and I mean, I kind of felt, at first I felt, oh, it's taking it at a really different angle, but then I kind of, I don't know. And then as I kind of went on, I thought, well, it's just kind of a, very much an extension of the story. But yeah, I, I think they're, a, they're an interesting take, very much sort of taking it from, again, it's, you know, somebody in Olmsted's position who is aware of their heritage and they've been interred with somebody who I think is a Japanese person after the war, if I'm remembering right. Yeah. At the time of the Second World War. And it kind of deals with them. And there's like a, a cult that worship the Deep Ones and Dagon. But this uh, protagonist, the, the hybrid... Aframash. When she goes along, she sort of sees through all their fakery, but she's still kind of... Uh, I don't know. Well, she tries to defang the cult to some extent because they have a, a heretical and, and dangerously false belief that they can do as the Deep Ones do and live forever beneath the waves. And they've got rituals which they believe will let them do that, but Afra realises they're not going to work and anyone who tries it is just going to drown. And she's tried to save them from themselves. Yeah, and I liked her blood magic where she could, uh, you know, if she touched somebody, if she sort of um, sort of sensed their blood, she could sort of get a, like a deep read on them. Mm. I thought that, that was a good gaming idea that we, we could take, that she could, I think she sort of paralleled it with the strength of their flow almost, like they, they were a water analogy that, you know, they were, but yeah, humans' flow was very limited. Their lifespan was very limited. Mm. Uh, whereas deep ones, you know, they, they kind of, like a massive river flowing out to the ocean sort of thing when she sort of uh, sensed them. I think at that point, she almost seemed to become sympathetic to the humans. The whole Innsmouth legacy cycle, I think, is actually quite heavily revisionist. I, I'd argue that it doesn't necessarily build upon the shadow of Innsmouth because it treats the events of the shadow of Innsmouth as apocryphal. So... What the the basic premise is, is that Innsmouth was something very different than what we see in The Shadow of Innsmouth, that the Deep Ones aren't these monstrous alien creatures, they are simply a different branch of humanity, that there are three different branches of people. There are the people of the air, who are us, who live on the surface of the world. There are the people of the water who are the deep ones who you know, had this this life cycle where they live their childhoods effectively on the surface and then when they reach adulthood and go through the change they then descend beneath the waves. And then there's the people of the earth who are the people of Kinyan who are something quite different. The way it's presented in the Innsmouth legacy is that 
there was a, a severe misunderstanding about what Innsmouth was and what the rites that were practiced there was and what the history of the place was. And it basically says, you know, none of that violent takeover of the town ever happened, that it was always a, uh, what they refer to as spawning grounds for for the people of the water. While they do worship the deities of the mythos, those are misunderstood as well. And fundamentally, it's all really nice and cuddly. There's nothing at all sinister about the Deep Ones. It's just the fact that they, they look a bit different. And There are a lot of parallels in the books between the way the Deep Ones are treated by the human community surrounding them and historical anti-Semitism or the history of anti-Semitism, right down to that Afra uses the term blood libel to describe the beliefs that people in the surrounding communities have about what went on in Innsmouth, which is a pretty loaded term. Mm. This is why I was saying in the previous episode, I'd kind of changed my mind about any conflict between the stuff that I did in Time and Tide and what's in the Innsmouth legacy. I think what Emerus has tried to do kind of goes beyond humanizing deep ones or making them sympathetic and presents a type of deep one and you know the society in Innsmouth that is portrayed very much as being better than human society that is sort of free of the conflicts and the petty venality and so on or at least largely free of them that they are almost distressingly noble and I'm not sure that really works for me in the stories. Mm. It's not so much there in the Litany of Earth, but it is very much there in Winter Tide and to some extent in Deep Roots. Right, I didn't get onto those later ones, yeah. It all becomes very cosy, very cuddly, mm. to, to an extent that, like I say, didn't really work for me. Mm. There's some stuff that she does in the third book, Deep Roots, which I think is a lot more interesting, where she takes a similarly revisionist look at ghouls and at the Migo. The way that she presents the Migo in particular, I think, is quite interesting. She also has a fantastic take on Yithians throughout the stories as well. But... The deep ones, I don't know, they're just too fucking nice for me. Hmm. It doesn't come out in the audio here, but the expression on your face talks volumes when you were saying about that it didn't <laughs> sit right with you. <laughs> I mean, part of that is because I'm choking on phlegm at the moment. It just adds to the experience. <laughs> Despite what I've just said there, I do wholeheartedly recommend The Litany of Earth for a start. And as Paul mentioned, it's available on Tor.com. I'll put a link in the show notes there. It's free to read and it's relatively short. Mm. Be warned that if you go on from there to Wintertide, as I said, that is a much more cuddly story. And also, if you do enjoy that, there's more stuff from Emrys on Tor.com, which I really recommend, which is she and another author, Anne M. Pillsworth, have been doing this column on Tor.com for years now. I don't know if it's still going, but it's called The Lovecraft Reread, where they started off very much like you know HP Podcraft, where they were going through Lovecraft stories one by oh, one, yeah. and each column is an analysis of the story, but a very deconstructive one where they're going through and looking at the social elements that have aged particularly badly and the, you know, the sexism and the racism in there, but also looking at the elements that have aged well and that 
have proved influential in fiction. And it's a very even-handed approach to a modern re-evaluation of Lovecraft. And they, once they reached the end of Lovecraft stories, they branched off and started doing other weird fiction as well. But if you're interested in that kind of thing, they're fantastic columns to read. Maybe going off on a slight tangent, again, one that may not work for the, uh, the, the medium of audio. As Scott mentioned, he was not too fond of the cutesified version of Deep Ones. This little fella arrived for me in the post a little while ago. What the fuck? As one of the new line of Seas for Cthulhu plushies, that they have started doing their other creatures that they first appeared in the Seas for Cthulhu board book for children. They have done a Deep One plushie, complete with a cute little tail that sticks out behind him. That's a deep one? Oh, that's quite cuddly. What? I, that... It's kind of Matt's holding up this uh, plushie, which is about a foot tall, and it's got kind of pink gill-like ears, or like wing-like ears sticking out the side of it. It's kind of blue with a white chest mm-hmm. and, and, big, and big friendly eyes. And a big curly tail. And a big curly tail. And a massive frown that maybe matches Scott's expression right about now. It's not that it's cute, it's just baffling. It's unspeakable. If you hadn't told me it was meant to be a deep one, I never would have guessed. Aww. I just wanted to mention one last story very quickly in passing, because I don't know if Matt read it, but I recommended it to him, which was Sugar Soul Peculiar by Neil Gaiman. I couldn't find it. Oh, yeah. All right. I reread it this afternoon just in preparation for this. And it's just a, a fun, silly little story, quite a short one. And it's about an American tourist on a walking tour of the English seaside who stumbles across a mention in a guidebook of this, this coastal town called Innsmouth, just north of Bootle, and stops off there and has a few pints with the locals and sees things the man was not meant to know. And it's done very much in the style of a, of an old Peter Cook and Dudley Moore sketch. It's just a very nice, light, comic reinterpretation of the mythos that actually goes into some interesting points, hmm. or at least some interesting interpretations of the mythos at the same time and so i mean it's not only fun to read but i can see it being and perhaps interesting gaming inspiration i didn't think to look that one out but i've got that on the shelf somewhere i remember reading it and enjoying it i had a look through the three jones collections and the two chaosium ones and i couldn't find it in any of them no i've got it like in a sort of like a little chapbook kind of just published a thin little book of its own yeah, and I've got it in Spoken Mirrors, which is a collection of Gaiman's work. Which I don't have. I'm pretty sure there's a reading of it that he did for the Lovecraft Easing on YouTube as well. It's only about 20 minutes. Have you visited our Red Bubble store? We have t-shirts, stickers and all sorts of goodies that you or someone you know might like. Check it out. Just click on the merchandise link on our website, blasphemoustomes.com. And now let's have a look at The Shadow of Rinsmouth in films and other media. So the first film that I saw that related to Shadow of Rinsmouth, I think, was Return to Rinsmouth. Mm. And this was something I think was probably advertised in The Unspeakable Oath or somewhere online, maybe, in the late 90s. And 
what did I do? I guess I sent off a, would I have sent off a check? <laughs> God knows, how did you pay for things in America in the 90s? Apparently it came out in 1999, so I think PayPal was around then, so you might have ordered it online. Yeah, maybe then. Carry a pigeon. Carrying that check in its little pouch. Yeah, anyway, so I remember this VHS tape coming from America. And so Return to Innsmouth is, a, a, I think it's about a 26-minute black and white film. And I'm guessing it sort of played at like the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival. And it tells the story of Olmsted going back to liberate his, uh, is it his nephew, his cousin? His cousin. That he mentions at the end of the story. And, and that's the premise. It's him going back to Innsmouth. And, you know, it's a low budget film. It's a, you know, mm. we have to kind of accept that. But. I really enjoyed it. I, I've, I remember it being a, a really fun film. I seem to recall there are one or two bits where it kind of goes to, I wouldn't say CGI, but I don't know, some sort of using computers for effects and so on. And those bits are going to have dated very heavily. But the rest of it, there's some good scenes and some very kind of uh, creepy scenes, I seem to recall. I was hoping for a moment you were going to say that it goes into almost like a Ray Harryhausen stop-motion animation pastiche there, but no. No, no, you don't get that. But I've, I've still got the tape on top of the wardrobe, I think, but I don't have a VHS player anymore. But unsurprising, I do. Ah, well, I'll bring it around sometime, Matt, and uh, we, can, we can see if it still plays. And of course, Return to Windsor was made by Aaron Vanek, who has mm. made a, a whole bunch of Lovecraftian short films, and who I believe actually listens to the podcast. So if you are listening, Aaron, certainly Paul and I have seen the film and we both enjoyed it thoroughly. Oh, very much, yeah. I've seen some of your other stuff as well. I'm very much a big fan of The Yellow Sign. Of course, the big one is Dagon, which I know you've seen, Matt. Yes, sir, definitely. A Stuart Gordon's Dagon is a really good film. Which, on the surface, you think, hang on a minute, this is Dagon. This is about a guy who gets in a, in a rowboat that's been uh, on a ship that's been torpedoed by a German U-boat. No, no Germans here, no U-boats. And, in fact, a Spanish version of Innsmouth, where it's off the coast of Spain, I believe, or Spain or Portugal, somewhere in, in that region. Spain, and it's a community that's called Imboca. I don't really speak Spanish, but if I remember correctly, boca is mouth, so I, I assume it translates somehow to Innsmouth or is related to Innsmouth. That certainly makes sense. Yes, uh, Stuart Gordon's retelling of the story is very much you've got this group of friends that have run afoul of Devil Reef. They've smashed up their boat, they're taken on water, and they've a couple of them have gone into the town to try and look for help. As you do in a horror film, it's great splitting the party and slowly killing them off one by one. And meeting the incomprehensible Zadok Allen stand-in, who I believe was, uh, the actor was uh, in lots yeah. of spaghetti westerns, including things like, mm. I think he was in The Wild Bunch or uh, Good, the Bad and the Ugly, some, somewhere in that kind of vein anyway. Mm. They renamed the character Ezekiel as well, mm -hmm. for some reason. Lots of renamings, but... Uh, you can tell from even just the first, I'll say, five or ten minutes that you're dealing with something that is very much Shadow of Innsmouth. You've got plenty of prophetic dreams. More hentalicious content, though, in the form of the lady on the bed. The actress, can't remember her name, turns up in 30 coins. Macarena Gomez. That's the one. Yeah. 
yeah, she appears in 30 Coins, so he's keeping up with the other uh, Lovecraftian tradition. Mm. But the the standout moment for the film has to be amongst one of the greatest exchanges for your cinematic dialogue, where one of the characters, Paul Marsh, says quite loudly, Fuck Dagon! And the uh, tentacle <laughs> priestess replies, Yes, and their children will be immortal! I <laughs> <laughs> uh, know there are some people out there who don't like Dagon and who don't think it's a very good Lovecraftian adaptation. And I'd like to tell you that you're wrong. Damn right. I mean, it's very much a Stuart Gordon film in that, well, I say Stuart Gordon film, and it's written by Dennis Pawley, like all the, the Gordon Lovecraft adaptations were, but it it is very much their essence of transgression and sexual discomfort and just plain weirdness mixed in with the uh, a very free interpretation of the story. But at the same time, it is just so damn much fun. I don't necessarily rank it above Reanimator or From Beyond, but I, I think it's it's close. It's got a nice ending, even just, just the visuals of how it uh, plays mm-hmm. out as well is one of those that leaves you wondering, what's down there? Hmm. <laughs> yeah, what did you make of it, Paul? Yeah, I enjoy it. I think I wouldn't rate it as highly as Reanimator, but uh, yeah, it's a fun movie. Yeah, and I think while the relocation to Spain was almost certainly, in fact, I'm sure I read this somewhere, just simply because they couldn't get the funding to make the film in the US, so they approached a Spanish production company and shot it in Spain and rewrote it to be Spanish so that they could actually get the film made. But inadvertently, I think that does sort of bring home what we were talking about before about this being a very easy thing to relocate to other cultures and other settings there's another example as well of that which i've only seen clips of i haven't haven't seen the whole thing i'm going to apologize to any japanese listeners out there for how badly i'm going to mangle this but it's called uh, Innsmouth Wo Owago Kage, I think. But it's it's a Japanese television adaptation of The Shadow of Innsmouth that was made in the early 90s, 1992. Like I say, there are clips of it on YouTube, not the whole thing. I didn't watch very much of it because the version I found, well, this was years ago, wasn't subtitled and I couldn't really follow it. But the bits of the visuals I saw certainly looked interesting. So if there is now a subtitled or dubbed version of it out there, it might be worth checking out. There is one other one that's a retelling of The Shadow of Innsmouth, but again, it's uh, not titled anything about Innsmouth. It very much follows the the Stuart Gordon vein of uh, actually being called Cthulhu rather than Dagon. And this is a yeah an, an odd one from back in 2007 that takes it in a very different direction. Mm. But again, it has that underlying theme of, yeah, this is definitely a retelling of Shadow of Rinsmith. I remember getting into arguments with people online about that film when it came out because 
It's made by a, a filmmaker who'd made a lot of films about gay subject matter before. And then Cthulhu is a very gay film. The protagonist is a gay man. And it is very much about him going back to his community for a, a family funeral and being pressured to conform. And it, it's presented very much through the bloodlines of Innsmouth and the the inheritance of the deep one ways and so on, that he is expected to take a a female mate and to continue the bloodline. And the way the whole thing comes together is a fantastic pressure cooker of a social situation with all the cosmic horror mixed in. And I absolutely love that aspect of the film. And I just remember being surprised by how badly a lot of the Lovecraftian fan community at the time took that. There were people, I mean, it was 2007, so I think attitudes have probably changed a bit since then, but it really brought out the homophobes. The stupidest argument I remember seeing someone post online was, well, it shouldn't be made because Lovecraft wouldn't have been into all that gay stuff. And it was sort of, Okay, well, do you think we should add racism to all the the Lovecraft adaptations? Because he he was into that shit too. <laughs> I mean, that's just online, isn't it? It's just empty tin cans make the loudest noise. I mean, it's um, it's very hard to gauge what the public perception, the broader perception of something is, because those people always kind of pop up and spout nonsense. Yeah, I don't know. I tend to ignore them. There's a couple of things that I remember that have stood out in my mind since I watched this. I mean, I've only watched it the once. I managed to finally track down the DVD, and the DVD has uh, sat, unfortunately, on gathering dust in my, in my uh, DVD cabinet ever since. One being not related to the film, but what someone had said about the film before I finally got to see it, which was, I find myself living in a very strange world if I find myself eagerly awaiting a Tory Spelling film to come out because she has a, a minor part in the film. It's really not, not a very big part, yeah. if I remember right. But the other one, some of the striking visuals, one of which is cosmic horror, the other one is not, but it's stuck in my memory of two of the characters masturbating underneath a pier. But there was one that, I'm not sure if it's a kind of blink and you miss it, but it's a very quick image that, I think it's used a couple of times in the film, but it's very sparse. It's very kind of blink and then it's gone again. Is of this large cuboid cage that sat on the beach mm. and all these arms and legs and people inside that are squished in desperately trying to reach out to, to try and escape and then it's gone again yeah yeah because that's that's how they do the sacrifices isn't mm. it they put these people in the cages and wait for the tide to come in and drown them that's it yeah just that's just that image has stuck with me ever since i thought that's a horrible way to go <laughs> yeah it's a very low budget film but there aren't a lot of special effects in it, but at the same time, I, you know, it's a, it's a beautifully made film, and yeah, I agree. I think, yeah, I highly recommend that one. Even I'd want to add to that, even the kind of highlights, the low budget, but also how something so simplistic can also work very, very well, is the images of the, the deep ones coming out of the ocean waves at the end of the film. And they're just silhouettes. They're just these figures coming out from the mm. sunlit ocean. Yeah. So you can't really tell any detail on the fact that, yeah, they're humanoid and they're coming out of the waves. And that you can just fill in the blanks all you want. There are also a few films which have certainly been inspired by The Shadow of Rinsmith. There's one which I, I mean, I was 
checking details of a few films I had seen, there was one I saw mentioned on the Wikipedia page for adaptations of The Shadow of Rinsmith, which I'd never even heard of before, and it surprises me, which is a British film from 1965 called City Under the Sea, which was made by Jacques Tournay, uh, who is best known as the director of things like Night of the Demon and Cat People, worked a lot with Val Luton. It sounds like a very free adaptation that's much more about um, this coastal environment in in England and the connected via tunnels to this undersea civilization that sounds very much like Johannes Ley. And this group of people, I think, going to try to rescue a friend who's been kidnapped by the deep ones down there. That does sound very, very familiar. It's either unless I'm conflating it with some other things. It's either got Peter Lorre or uh, Vincent Price in it from, from memory. Yeah, it is Vincent Price, yeah. There you go, yeah, yeah. No, I, th- I think I have seen it a long time ago and remember fragments, but nothing substantive. Now, Peter Lorre, there's a man who really should have played a deep one at some stage. <laughs> who needs makeup when you got him? There's a film I did see from not too long after that time, which I actually reviewed on BlasphemousTomes.com as part of my October Horror Movie Challenge back in 2014, a film called Lamora, A Child's Tale of the Supernatural, which is a weird fucking film. It's, it's a very dreamlike, fairy tale, low-budget, experimental horror film, but it draws heavily upon the shadow of Rinsmith. It's got a real kind of nightmare version of Joe Sargent's bus ride to the town and but instead of deep ones, it's vampires, and it sort of mixes in elements of um, Camilla, and it is a weird fucking film. I think I recommended it, and when it's ten years since I've seen it, and I remember it as being interesting, but I can't remember any details. That does suddenly make me think, though, that your comment earlier about defanging a certain cult, when I think you were talking about the uh, the trio of books there, that's thinking, how can you defang a fish? But now, now you've proved a way you can. <laughs> have either of you seen Cold Skin? I know of it, but I've not seen it. It's the one that's, again, set by a lighthouse and the, the uh, is it the mermaid that's picked up or something? Well, it's not a mermaid. It's a deep one. It really is a deep one. Oh, I think I have. Oh. Yeah, Spanish-French co-production from 2017 made by Javier Jean, who directed Frontiers. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, I have seen it, I think. With Ray Stevenson as this eccentric lighthouse keeper who's in this this ongoing conflict with this community of Deep One-type creatures and That's right. having a, a rather improper sexual relationship with one of them and yeah. this scientist who finds himself caught in the middle of it all. Yeah, I found a lot to like in it. I thought ultimately it, as a story, it didn't go anywhere desperately interesting. Yeah. But the elements that made it up, I think you could do a hell of a lot with that. It reminded me in the setup quite a lot of The Lighthouse, which came obviously a few years later, Mm. though tonally it's very different and it's a very different kind of story. But that that isolation, that weird environment of this early 20th century lighthouse and finding yourself just in that situation with that really horrible character and all these 
sinister aquatic deep one type creatures living off the coast. And yeah, I, I thought it was a great setup. I just wish they'd done more with it. Yeah, yeah. Admit it, you like my lobster. <laughs> exactly. A much better film. I think one of the adaptations that I've, well, I mean, very, perhaps not adaptation, but something that's inspired by Shadow Rinsmith and goes and uses the same name is season three of the Lovecraft Investigations, mm. which is a BBC series written by Julian Simpson. Yeah, in this season, the setup of the of the show is it's a, a podcast. Hey, it's a podcast being made, <laughs> you know, kind of investigative podcast. They research things and, and put their podcasts out about their researches. And in this season, Kennedy Fisher, one of the hosts, is heading out to America to, to look up some of her ancestry mm. and heritage. And she's going to a little place called Innsmouth. But it doesn't just give us the Shadow of Rinsmouth rehashed, or at least it's rehashed with a lot of other ingredients mixed in. Probably the standout for me is she goes to like this old church in town and there's this there's this guy down in the crypts and he, he comes up and she's kind of freaked. She doesn't know who he is. And uh, she's like, what, you, what were you doing down there? And he kind of gets a bit, freaked out and, and and leaves and she goes down and there's some coffins and shit down there well you know it's a crypt under a church right mm. but apparently he's been growing mushrooms on the corpse or on the you know the corpse dust of some uh, long dead serial killer and then we learn like they're magic mushrooms and uh he, she goes around that's right she goes around to see him at some point she she mentions about the deep ones or something and he goes, oh, don't, don't, no, 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 don't say that, they'll, they'll be after us. And then she sort of placates him for a moment and she's like, and, and he's like, what, what's your name? And she tells him her name and he's, oh my God, they'll be after us. And he just keeps, <laughs> every time she tells him something, he just forgets and then she'll say it again. And then she learns he was off his face on magic mushrooms, <laughs> which I think, for, obviously uh, he, this guy is Zadok Allen, right? Yeah. And it's just a great modern reinterpretation of Zadok Allen that he's not like, He's not an alcoholic, you know, he's off his face on magic mushrooms, which, uh, I don't know, it was just a, a rare bit of comedy in this show because it's a brilliant drama. All all the seasons have just been fantastic. There's not a lot of humour in it, I, I wouldn't say. There's not much There's not much black humour in it either. It's it's mostly straight and, and really well done, and I think it captures some of the, mm. the horror and the unnerving sort of stuff that you can get with audio that you can obviously get on film but i think it, it's a lot it takes a lot more doing perhaps to get that on film whereas on audio it's a great medium for sort of capturing eerie effects just based on obviously just based on sound and voices and and, and background sounds yeah it's, it's a brilliant production i highly recommend it i'll be counterpoint to that i must be in the minority on this but mm. i was very disappointed with those three of the stories that I listened to. There is a fourth one out now, I think, but again, I haven't. Yeah. Haunter of the Dark, yeah. Yeah, I haven't gone to look at that because of the disappointment I had with the first three. It just seemed like Simpson had decided, I want to do more of my Pleasant Green universe, but I'm not getting the listeners, so I'll slap Mythos Tower titles on it and try and get people into it to view it that way. Because they have such little resemblance in some of them to the original stories that they're based on. I felt really cheated. Yeah. And I felt I've just, yeah. Oh, 
that's part of the appeal because the original stories exist and we've seen faithful adaptations in the ball before. I think it's far more exciting for people to reinvent these things in different ways. If you want a straight telling of The Shadow of Innsmouth, read The Shadow of Innsmouth. If, if he'd just done it straight all over again, there wouldn't have been any point. Yeah, I really enjoyed the way he's uh, sort of taken those Lovecraft stories. You know, he hasn't really tried to set them in the modern day, but he's used elements of mm. them in the modern day and sort of interwoven them with folklore and, and history in, for me, an interesting way, but, you know, not for you, Matt. There are just a couple more films I wanted to mention in passing. There's a couple of recent ones, one of which I haven't seen. I've just watched the trailer for it, and the trailer didn't sell me on it. So I, I was going to watch it before this, but I couldn't summon up the enthusiasm. But I, I don't know if either of you have a film called The Deep Ones. Yes, I have seen that. It looked from the trailer like Rosemary's Baby redone as a Deep One film. Is that Kind of right, or did it turn out to be something different? Given I know I've definitely seen the film and there's a couple of scenes that I remember from it, I remember it being incredibly forgettable. Apart from mm. the god-awful CGI that's in it, and it's really, really bad CGI. Yeah, that's kind of what put me off in the trailer. Not the CGI, but it just looked really cheap. It is. The other main thing I remember from it, apparently it has a really abrupt ending. It's not kind of French Connection style abrupt, but it's very suddenly, oh, is that it? We're done. Hmm. It's nothing particularly special. There's nothing that strikes any quality or any kind of poignancy. Yeah, it, It's very forgettable and you can pass on it without missing anything. You don't have to worry about any kind of fear of missing out FOMO here. On a more positive note, there is one from 2021 that I saw, I think, last year or the year before, that doesn't credit the shadow of Rinsmith in any way, but I can definitely see parallels. And there's a film called Off Season. It's this weird, relatively low-budget cosmic horror film that was shot in a place called New Smyrna, Florida, which is this sort of remote, uh, yeah, I think, island community, or at least on a spit of land. And the premise of it is that when it comes to the off-season, that they, there's this road bridge that links the island to the mainland that is just closed off the off-season every year. And there is this woman who has been called back to the island because her mother came from there and the, her mother's headstone has been vandalised. And she has to go back and try to sort it out. And she's going back just on the day when the off-season is about to start. And there's this cut-off that she's got to try to get out of there before the community gets cut off for six months. And, I mean, that seems like a weird thing to do anyway, like completely isolating the community. But it turns out that there's good reason for that and that it has connections with eldritch entities. And it's not a great film. It does kind of flounder a bit in places, but I think it captures some of the the weirdness of The Shadow of Rinsmith in a, a modern way and reinvents it in quite a clever manner. If you're okay with a fairly low-budget cosmic horror film, yeah, you could do a lot worse. Yeah. 
So yeah, that's it for films and, and books. I mean, as we said, there's loads of others of both varieties, but it's also pervaded other media. I mean, the biggest media nowadays is, of course, video games. And, you know, we did have one of those. It's about probably about 10, 15 years ago this came out, probably nearer 15 years ago. Dark Corners of the Earth. Almost 20. Well, almost 20. I played this back when it came out, not that I finished it, because in its initial release it was quite buggy and there were certain points where technical problems made it quite difficult to go on and I must admit I lost patience with it. But yeah, it's it's an interesting, I guess, reworking of the Escape from Innsmouth campaign. Mm. You're playing a private investigator who... He's a former cop who lost his career after being possessed by a Yithian for many years, and he's still got a, a connection with the mythos as a result. And he is hired to go to Innsmouth to look for a missing person who is the, the clerk from the First National Grocery Store. And, yeah, it sort of escalates from there as he learns some of Innsmouth's dark secrets and then gets caught up in the raid and gets steadily more action packed and you know there's romps through devil reef and the area underneath it and yeah all sorts of cool stuff in there i believe that it may have been patched since then and might be a bit more stable but and it's got to look dated by bond standards anyway but i guess if you're willing to to put up with that and fight some of the bugs it's probably still worth playing Hell, I play things like Maniac Mansion still. I'm a, I'm, I'm a fan of uh, all those 8-bit graphics. I can cope with something that looks dated. I did watch a few actual play videos of Dark Horns of the Earth. I can't remember when, when I watched them. But isn't there some scene in there where you end up taking effectively a artillery gun off the front of a ship and you're shooting Dagon with it? Or you're shooting something big and hideous? <laughs> it is Dagon, yes. This should be given as a primer to wannabe investigators. Here's the kind of skills you need. You must have artillery if you're going into this particular scenario. Heavy weapons. <laughs> uh, there have been a couple of games that have come out recently, which I just picked up in the Steam sale, and I'm looking forward to getting stuck into them, both of which draw heavily upon the shadow of Rinsmith, so I can't really talk about them yet, but it's occurring to me that I should probably play them and stream them on the Good Friends Discord server, just so I can give some impressions to them. One is The Sinking City, which came out like four years ago. It's not set in Innsmouth, but it's set in a very Innsmouth-like town where there are a bunch of refugees from Innsmouth who have ended up there and are kind of reshaping the place. And then there's another slightly more recent one, an adventure which looks kind of weird, called Call of the Sea, where, it, I mean, it's very bright and colourful looking, and it seems like you're playing someone who might be a deep one hybrid who is feeling, well, the Court of the Sea. And yeah, that's kind of cool. So yeah, yeah, I, I may endeavour to stream those on the server. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. 
We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash good friends of Jackson Elias. Thank you for listening. Oh, after seven episodes, I think we've explored every nook and cranny there is possible past, present and future over that little seaside town. <laughs> I think so, Matt. Ah, but there is still the hidden depths of Johannesley. Glub, glub. And if you are enjoying the podcast, we would absolutely love it if you let people know. Whether that means leaving a review somewhere deep under Devil Reef or just telling like-minded people about it when you encounter them in the lightless depths. That wraps up Shadow of Rinsmouth. You've been listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. Now, if you'd all like to make your way back to uh, Joe Sargent's bus, we'll be getting on the bus back to Innsmouth shortly. We've had you know plenty of time in Innsmouth. I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure the bus is working now. I heard there was some mechanical repairs last time they were looking at it. At the... No, no, no. Joe, Joe's fixed that. He told me ah. it's all fine now. We saw the dice. He got. We got under ten on his mechanical repair roll. This will be fine. Yeah, he gave me the wink and everything. Well, he didn't actually. No, he just looked at me with those those big, big eyes. He didn't didn't wink at all. But anyway, enough of that. Until next time, it's a goodbye and a glub glub and a uh, I don't know what else from me. It's a from me. And a I really wanted to spend the night in the Gilman house from me. Blasphemous Tomes.com mm-hmm.